Thank you. Good morning, everyone. It is so good to see you. I love that song that we just sang about the goodness of God. And I just look around. We just celebrated the baptisms. The sun is coming out. The women beat Germany yesterday. <laughs> so these are all signs that God is on the move, I think. And I, I have the privilege and the honor of getting to share on mission this morning, how Jesus invites us into the beautiful wild of the kingdom of God, and the kingdom of God looks like mission. And I think one of the things why this matters, what we're doing today matters, why worship matters, why God's word matters, is because if our souls are full of life and hope, then we have life and hope to bring into the world. And I know for so many people, the last couple years has been rough. It's been full of challenges and trials and difficulties. You know, I heard a story recently about a, a guy with his three-year-old son who was shopping at a, a local store. And his three-year-old son was having a complete meltdown, screaming and yelling and shouting. But the way the father was responding to the situation was so interesting because he kept saying, Billy, just settle down. Billy, we're almost halfway there. Billy, I'm praying really hard right now in Jesus' name. Billy, it's going to be okay. And the whole time he was at this store, he kept talking in this way. Finally, he goes through the checkout line, walks out into the parking lot, and the guy who checked him out at the, the checkout line runs out after him, and he said, Sir, I, I meant to tell you this while you were in line, but I just had to say, I'm a dad too, and the way you loved your son Billy, the way you talked Billy off the edge, the way you were so patient with Billy, he said, I, I've never seen anything like that. That was incredible. Good job. And, and the dad looked back at this guy, and he said, I, I don't think you understand. I'm Billy. So <laughs> the whole time he's talking to himself. I don't know about you, but something about the last couple years has kind of felt that way for many of us. Billy, we can get through this, right? And, and I think God gives us the gift of one another. He gives us the gift of Creation Fest. He gives us the gift of his word. So that's what we're going to study this morning if you have a Bible nearby, if you want to grab it, would you turn with me to the Gospel of Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10. And we're going to have a look, a quick look at the story of the Great Samaritan. And I just want to give you three simple takeaways from this story as it pertains to the beautiful wild of the mission of God. Luke chapter 10, we'll pick it up in verse 25. So the story begins this way. It says, on one occasion, an expert of the law stood up to test Jesus. Jesus, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, he replied. How do you read it? Now, pause there for a second. Uh, the story begins, it says, an expert in the law came up to Jesus with a question. And when you read this phrase, expert in the law, um, don't think attorney or a lawyer. Uh, in the first century, this was a phrase that referred to someone who was an expert in Judaism and 
the Torah. In other words, they'd gone to seminary. They had studied under the rabbis. They had memorized most of the Old Testament. Super sharp guy comes up to Jesus, and Luke tells us that he wanted to test him. Now, I think a better translation would say to trap Jesus. He wasn't asking Jesus these questions because he genuinely wanted to know the answer, but rather he wanted to prove to himself and to others that Jesus was a fraud. So he asked them, okay, what do we have to do in order to inherit eternal life? In other words, what does the kingdom of God look like? Just describe this abundant life that you've been talking about and preaching about. And in verse 27, Jesus answered, he said, love, <laughs> love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied, do this and you will live. But it says he wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor. Now, technically, th this guy responds correctly. W what's the answer? What does it look like to live in the kingdom of God? He says, well, love God and love others. So far, so good. But then in verse 29, he asked a follow-up question, and he said, Jesus, who is my neighbor? Now, th this is where he wanted to trap Jesus, because in the first century, the ultra- religious, pious people, they had a very specific definition of what a neighbor was. To them, a neighbor was someone in their community, someone who shared the same morality or the same politics or the same ethics. And so they believed, hey, you're my neighbor if you look a lot like me, and if you look a lot like me, then I'll care for you. I'll love you. And it's all good. But the, the undertone here, the implication is if you don't act like me or think differently than me, then you're not my neighbor. And if you're not my neighbor, then I really don't have to help you. In fact, there's this ancient document called the Book of Sirach. It goes back thousands of years. In one of the chapters, it actually says this, quote, give to the devout, but do not help the sinner. In other words, they believe that the only person worthy of being called a neighbor are people just like them. But what made Jesus' teaching so revolutionary is that Jesus redefined what a neighbor was. A neighbor wasn't just an insider or a political ally or even someone with the same worldview as you. The neighbor, according to Jesus, was the outsider. The neighbor was the person that maybe you didn't see eye to eye with or disagreed with or maybe even despised. You know, the Apostle Paul, he picks up on this idea in the book of Ephesians chapter 2. And he said, for he himself is our peace. And he has made the two groups one. And he has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. And his purpose was to create in himself, I love this line, one new humanity out of the two, thus making 
peace. The Apostle Paul says, because of the gospel, the dividing wall of hostility has been torn down. And the word hostility simply means hate. In other words, all the hate that we see in the world, the racism, sexism, political oppression, wars, injustice, is being overcome and pushed back by the power of the gospel. And as followers of Jesus, we are called in his mission to restore and renew all things through the power of the Holy Spirit. And that is the essence of the story that we're about to get into here as Jesus says this is what it looks like as he defines what a good Samaritan is. Check it out, verse 30. It says, in reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. And they stripped him of his clothes, they beat him, and they went away leaving him half dead. And a priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But, and this is where it gets scandalous in the first century. It says, a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. And notice what the pity looks like in verse 34. It says, he went to him, he bandaged his wounds, he poured on oil and wine. Oil in the Bible, of course, and wine, for that matter, is a picture, a symbol of the Holy Spirit. More on that later. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, took care of him, and the next day he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, and he said, look after him. And when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense that you may have. So the expert, quote-unquote expert in the law, asked Jesus, he's like, okay, tell me who my neighbor is. And Jesus' response, as he often loved to do, was to tell him a story. He said, okay, let me tell you a story about a good Samaritan. Now, the first thing we need to know about this story is that in the first century, as far as religious people were concerned, there was no such thing as a good Samaritan. This was an oxymoron. It would be like Jesus saying, and there was a good terrorist who walked down the street kicking puppies or something. I mean, to them in the first century, this was unheard of. What are you talking about? A good Samaritan? And the reason they thought that is because there was some serious bad blood with the Samaritans that went back more than 900 years before Jesus told this story. There was a civil war between North and South Israel, and the, the civil war had to do with race, religion, and politics. And the result of this war is that for centuries, the Jewish people and the Samaritans absolutely despised one another. Jesus said, a man went from Jerusalem to Jericho. Now, you can actually go visit this road today. I believe we have a picture of it. It's the famous Jericho Road. And it has kind of a sordid past. Um, the road was about 18 miles long. As you can see from the picture, it was long, it was dusty, 
It was rocky. It was lonely. Uh, it, it started out around 2,800 feet above sea level, then went down to 825 feet below sea level. And it was known as the most dangerous road in all of Israel. Not only because it was hot and flat and dry and dusty and easy to fall, but robbers would camp out near this road and they would attack people who walked by. So by going on this Jericho road, you're literally taking your life into your hands. In fact, it was so dangerous that in the first century, people gave it a nickname. It was called in the first century, quote, the way of blood. Could you imagine if we named our roads something like that? Someone invites you over to dinner. Yeah, I'll go. How do I get to your house? Well, just go down the way of blood for about 10 miles and then turn right on manslaughter lane or whatever. Be like, it's okay. We'll meet at Starbucks. Uh, but that's what they called this place. It was extremely dangerous. It, it was th this kind of road that this man from Jericho begins his journey and then like you do, he's stripped, he's beaten, he's robbed, he's thrown to the side of the road. And Jesus tells us this man is desperate, he's broken, he's bleeding. But then suddenly, there's hope. Why? Because a priest walked by, and a Levite walked by. And you would think of all the people that would help this poor man out, they would be at the top of the list. They, they both worked in the temple. They both knew scripture. Their entire job was to help people. But Jesus says, instead of stopping to help this man, they, they passed on to the other side. But the irony is, you've seen a picture of the road, there really isn't another side to this road. They're practically stepping over this broken man's body to get to where they wanted to be. Which raises the question, why didn't they stop? You know, some say, well, maybe they were afraid of touching a dead body, which, of course, the book of Leviticus and Numbers talks about. Or maybe they're afraid of being robbed and they didn't feel safe. Or, you know, most likely they just, they didn't want to be inconvenienced. They're busy. They had things on their calendar. Like, sorry. I can't help you. I need to go serve the Lord. Good luck. And so they carry on on their journey. And, and I was reading through this again this week, and, and it hit me because my impulse is to be, like, really hard on these guys for that kind of calloused hypocrisy. But I think we first have to question how we see this pharisaical ethos in our own hearts. I mean, have you ever been in a place where you see a need and it's like right there in front of you. Someone needs help financially or a place to stay or a meal or just someone to listen to them. Or you hear about an opportunity to serve in your community or in your church. I mean, it's so many times there can be this religious impulse in my heart where we throw Christianese at the hurting. Or we'll say things like, hey, bro, I'll pray for you. And we all know that we don't really mean that, right? We just use that as an excuse to get out of conversation. And we pass by on the other side of the road. But what's so striking to me is how different this is from the way of Jesus and the mission of Jesus 
and the beautiful wild of the kingdom of God because Jesus didn't go about a life aloof and untouchable. He was physically, emotionally, spiritually invested in the flourishing of others. Jesus' heart led him to the lost, the lonely, and the marginalized. He made others' grief his grief, their pain, his pain, their wounds, his wounds. And although large clouds, crowds pushed around him and clamored around him, Jesus was never too busy to notice one weary traveler who needed rescue. And the very people that the self-righteous and religious did their best to avoid, Jesus went after because, brothers and sisters, Jesus runs to the people that religion runs from. And it's that kind of heart that we see with the Good Samaritan. I love verse 33. It says, he came to where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. Now, if I could geek out for just one second with some original language stuff, this is interesting. Because this word pity in the Greek language... <laughs> And I just love saying it. It's the word splagmizomai. Splagmizomai. And it comes from this Greek word splagnon, which means guts or bowels or intestines. And the reason why they associated deep emotion with your gut is because in the first century, they believed that your deepest emotions weren't necessarily stored in your head or your heart but in your gut. Now, we're actually learning about this scientifically, that we have all these neurons in our guts right now. And this is a Greek idea, splagnon, splagmizomai. So if you wanted to tell someone how much you love them, you would say, I love you with all of my splagnon. Now, guys, you can try this with your wife. It may not connect very well. But they would know what you were talking about in the first century. When the Samaritans saw this guy, it says his splagmizomai, his, the, the bowels of his being, his gut, went out to him. He was moved at the deepest level, and he bandaged his wounds. He poured out oil and wine. He put him on his, his donkey, brought him to an inn, and he gave the innkeeper basically his credit card. He's like, any expenses on me, whatever it costs to take care of him, make sure you do, it, do that. Now, Let's close with these verses, and this is where we're going to get three practical takeaways. Jesus says, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hand of robbers? And the expert in the law, the religious guy, replied, oh, the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Three takeaways. Number one, what does it look like to go and do likewise? What does it look like to live on the mission of Jesus? Number one, we need to recognize common humanity in those that we despise. Just like this religious leader, we, we love to label. We love to categorize people. We love to say who's in or out or who's a part of our tribe or not a part of our tribe. But in this story, Jesus blows all of that apart. He teaches us that the very person we may think is on the outside 
from God's perspective, is actually a son and a daughter. That the people we love to judge or criticize or push to the margins, Jesus would say, no, they're made in the image of God. I love them. I care for them. In fact, in the Old Testament, did you know that the most sacred piece of furniture was called the Ark of the Covenant? And on top of the Ark of the Covenant was what was called the caporet or the mercy seat. It was the place where the high priest would offer these sacrifices and meet with God. And according to the book of Exodus chapter 25, on either side of the mercy seat were two cherubim. And there's this interesting line. It says the cherubim were facing one another. The priest would meet with God between the two faces of the cherubim. One author, Jonathan Sachs, put it this way. He said, God speaks where two persons turn their face to one another. In love, embrace, generosity, and care. We discover God's image in ourself by discerning it in another. We need to recognize common humanity in those we despise. Number two, love demands investment. You know, it's striking to me that the Samaritan doesn't just throw money at the traveler. Oh, here's a fiver. Good luck. No, instead, he, he cared for him in a holistic, generous, all-of-life kind of way. The good Samaritan didn't just give this man a Band-Aid, he gave him a bed. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he said, we're not simply to bandage the wounds of victims beneath the wheels of injustice. We are to drive a spoke into the wheel itself. And so this raises the question for us, what does it look like for us to radically invest in the lives of others? What does it look like to drive a spoke into the wheel of injustice? It, it, it's so much more. Living on the mission of Jesus is so much more than just throwing money at someone or some cause or using a hashtag. Anyone can do that. It's called Twitter. The, the mission of God, the, the beautiful wild of, of his kingdom means taking time to invest and focus, it means slow, deliberate steps towards justice. So who are the people in your life that God is calling you to invest in? Who, who is that one individual? What are the parts of your city or community or school that God is calling you to pour your life into? What are the broken parts of the world where God is calling you to be a healing presence? Because, brothers and sisters, your life is the story God is writing for a loveless world. And we are to live so our love makes non-believers question their disbelief in God. The, the final takeaway, and I'll leave you with this is that Jesus is what love looks like. I think this is the most important point of all because at its core, the Good Samaritan isn't just about what we should do, it's about what God has done. We all are the wounded traveler. 
we all know our testimony, our story. We all know what it's like to be ambushed by the enemy on the Jericho Road. We all know what it was like before we knew Christ, how sin ripped us apart and left us broken. We, we've all had those times in our life of desperation. And, and you think back again to your story and what you did in those moments of desperation and who you turned to in that moment of desperation. Maybe it was a person. Maybe it was a substance. Maybe it was religion. But what we found is that nothing satisfies like Jesus. What we found is that religion actually passes us by. Religion condemns the broken, but Jesus makes the broken his mission. Religion excludes the sinner, but Jesus invites the sinner to his table. Religion shames people for having dirty feet. Jesus kneels down to wash those dirty feet. Jesus is the good Samaritan in this story. And just like the Samaritans of years ago, Jesus was the outsider. He was persecuted, despised, born in poverty, a victim of racism, experienced injustice, and yet in his love, he came to us he stooped down to us as we were broken on the road. He bandaged our wounds, healed us, cared for us, lavished his mercy on us. He brought us to the table. He gave us the oil of the Holy Spirit. And just like this story, he's brought us to a place of rest. In John 14, he says, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. I've gone to prepare a place for you that where I am there, you may be also. Someday he will return for us. And until that day, just like this story, he says, my grace will cover your shame and your debt and your hurt and your pain. That is the good news of the gospel. Amen. And that's what he's called us to share. You know, my daughter Amelia, when she was younger, two years old, she had this moment, again, like that story of Billy. <laughs> she had this moment where she was having a temper tantrum, and she was playing with these little trains. She was really into Thomas the Tank Engine. Are, are people still into that here? Okay, she was really, we were living in England at the time, really into Thomas the Tank Engine. And uh, one day, as she's playing with Thomas, Something happened. She got mad at Thomas and threw him across the room. And I saw this whole thing happen. And so wanting to be a good dad, I go to my daughter, Amelia, and I, I pick her up. And I'm like, sweetie, you can't throw Thomas like that. Because you did that, I'm going to bring you upstairs to your room. And I, I want you to have a timeout. I, I want you to have some time where you just think about this. Now, my daughter, she's a raging extrovert. Like, a timeout is her version of hell. So as we're walking up the stairs, she's like, I could see it in her eyes. She did not want to have a timeout. And true story, as we're walking up, she grabs my face with her little two-year-old hands. Her blue eyes are like two inches from my face. She's staring at me. And with a loud, desperate voice, she cries out, But Dad, what about grace? What about grace? 
Now, what do I do with that? I'm a pastor, you know. I'm teaching on grace every week. So it's like, you've got me there. So we went back downstairs and we had a talk. Now she's 17 years old and she still reminds me, Dad, what about grace? What about grace? You see, brothers and sisters, that's the good news of the gospel. He is a God of grace and mercy and compassion. And he invites us today to be his healing presence in a world that's gone wrong, in a world that's hurting, in a world that knows nothing but injustice and despair. And we are sent through the power of his spirit to be the hands and feet of Jesus. Amen. Father, I pray that you would fill us and empower us with your spirit as we, Lord, prepare our hearts to learn more of what that looks like. I pray you would open our hearts to receive more of you. And Father, send us out. Send us out, Lord, through your spirit to the broken people, to the broken places, that we could show them, Lord, what the gospel not only sounds like, but looks like in Jesus' name.